I was recently asked why I put so much time and effort into speaking about New Zealand's national security. The same reason you should, I replied. For our children, nieces, nephews and their children. Hi, I'm Simon Ewing Jarvie. It's our responsibility to live a better, safer, freer country than we inherited. And the only way that's going to happen is if ordinary citizens are involved in the national security conversation. That conversation should start with a comprehensive national security strategy being formulated, not the compartmentalised and under-resourced thinking which has been allowed to take hold, because that is indefensible, New Zealand. Hi, I'm Heather Roy, and I'm welcoming you to episode two of the Indefensible New Zealand podcast series. Really, you need a crystal ball, don't you? This is We're looking 30 years out. How have you gone about thinking about this? Well, that's a good question. I've taken um, the Stats New Zealand data from the census and their projections, and they do you know, bell curves and they look at different uh, statistical options, and I've taken the middle track. And then what I've mixed in with that is the expert opinions of people like Professor Paul Spoonley and, and guys like that who are making these kinds of observations all the time. Mm. With all of that in mind, what do you think will the defining feature of life in Aotearoa New Zealand in 2050 be? Tribalism. And uh, it's not just me that, that, that uh, thinks about that. Let's just talk about what tribalism means. It doesn't mean that we're all going to go off and live in our own little huts. What it means is that a group of people will see another group of people within New Zealand as being absolutely different to them, almost to the point of considering them a different species, if you take that to the extreme. And so when you get that polarisation of tribalism, you can get a whole lot of uh, quite undesirable outcomes for the nation. So we need to explore that because that's going to have an mm. impact on national security. So can we all coexist in that sort of environment? A- absolutely we can. And let's just run through the numbers. In the middle track, we're going to end up in 2050 with about 6 million people. We've got about 5 million now. So it's quite a slow growth. Mm. It, it could be as many as eight, eight and a half million, and it could be below six million, depending on other variables. But the the, main, the middle line's about six million. Up to forty percent of those people, though, are going to live in Auckland, and that is a significant shift from the twenty percent that it is currently. Also concerning is that the projections are that uh, populations will have declined in about half of New Zealand's regions, and you just think about where, uh, particularly in the South Island, regions are struggling for say workers now and project that out 30 years. The Maori Pacifica Asian grouping, data-wise, will outnumber Pākehā for the first time around about then. And what about um, age ranges? Are we going to have an elderly population supported by just a very small, younger population? Yeah, record high numbers over 85 because we're getting better at keeping people alive. Um, There's going to be about 25% of the people will be in the retirement zone over 65. Gosh, it's a quarter of the population. Yeah, mm-hmm. one and a half million people. Yep. There's going to be uh, one and a half million people aged between 18 and, and 39, which is that sort of peak age of where we draw our defence forces from, for instance, and our police. Yes. Yep. Uh, also our workers, of course, and those that are having children. Then there's the children. Yeah. And then there's that sort of bracket in between 40 and 65. So quite a, basically an ageing population and the cost of that is borne by a relatively small number. Mm. And the flow-on implications for that are obviously quite significant and, most importantly, quite different from what we have at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be different in so many ways, and we're going to have to, uh, I think, completely rethink how we do tax. We're certainly going to have to rethink how we staff our national security functions because there simply aren't going to be as many people around to do some of these things. 
So if we think about the people governing the country, they're going to have to have a significant mind shift. And we're not talking about tinkering around the edges here, are we? We're actually talking about significant reform is going to be required to um, enable us to retain the wealth that we currently have. Absolutely. Let's just talk about some of those things in the political, uh, legal space. If you've got nearly 40% of your people living in Auckland under our current mixed member proportional representation model, that means most of your members of parliament are actually up there as well. Mm. So just with electorates, and then you add some list MPs and some Māori seats in, you're going to have huge resentment around, in, in, in my model, there'll mm-hmm. be huge resentment around the non-Auckland part of the country. But Professor Paul Spoonley makes another interesting observation. He talks about a three-nation effect where you've got the nation of Auckland, New Zealand, and then the nation of the rest of New Zealand, New Zealand. Uh, but he also identifies predominantly Māori areas uh, being Northland and, say, the East Coast. So that's the three-nation effect. Yeah. Now, what that means for national security, uh, we're going to have to explore that as we go through the series. Yes. Now, we're coming okay. back to politicians, you can imagine from your own experience in Parliament, if you've got 40% of your MPs coming from one region, what that means for a debate. Yeah. So just looking at some of the other issues uh, politically and legally that are going to be going on in 2050 and beyond, one thing's for sure is we're going to be wrestling with a huge uh, number of refugees, an economic and a climate refugee problem. Um, now there's about 80 million people currently displaced in the world if you project to 2050 and take a, a, a middle line model of climate refugees you can add another 200 million people to that 80 million mm. they've got to go somewhere otherwise you're going to have unrest and New Zealand is uh, seen as an attractive place to come to how are we going to balance that the Pacific I think the Pacific will be the wild west by 2050 uh, for developed nations to go in there and the main reason for that is that the island nations are depopulating and in most cases they're not economically viable and so you'll have debt trap diplomacy you'll have people coming in with aid programs you'll have people in some in some cases I think just trying to outright buy the place Mm. And uh, see, so I use the term the Wild West because, in a security sense, that's what it's going to be like. Yeah. What about Antarctica? You've talked a, bit, a lot about that in the past. Mm. Um, we're the easy gateway to Antarctica, and um, there's a lot of countries now with significant interests in it. Yeah, and the Antarctic Treaty is is under strain already. Uh, more and more people wanting to have a slice of the action down there, wanting to join the treaty, and we we will be seeing increased not just fishing illegal fishing down there, we're going to be seeing increased breaches of the 60 South Line by warships Mm -hmm. and uh, I believe we're going to be seeing uh, significant numbers of military forces on the Antarctic continent ostensibly there to support scientific research but on such a scale that that's simply not plausible. Mm. And then what do you do about that? I think we're going to have other countries coming to us and wanting to use our base at Hearwood, Christchurch, the Operation Deep Freeze Base to, to head to Antarctica. And how is that going to work for us and our relationship with, say, the United States? Yeah. lot to think about in that space, isn't there? Mm-hmm. Um, and most interestingly, it's something that we've both talked about with our anti-nuclear legislation uh, in New Zealand, is that I think it's highly likely that we'll have to uh, drop our ban on nuclear propulsion. And the reason for that is that increasingly cargo ships will be nuclear propelled, both for controlling emissions and simply because it becomes economically viable after peak oil. We trade 97% by sea. If we're not going to allow nuclear propelled cargo ships in and out of New Zealand, we're not going to be we're not going to be trading. Yeah, that's going to be very controversial for New Zealanders who are pretty wedded by and large 
to our nuclear-free status. Mm. But the European Greens have been on record saying that actually nuclear is one of the cleaner forms of uh, energy. So Yes, it's going to take a mind shift for New Zealanders though. Yep, mm. absolutely. What about the, in the economic and social space, what, what changes do you see happening there? Well, anything that can be automated will be automated <laughs> in 30 years and things that we never even dreamed might have been possible. What goes with that is that a huge uh, chunk of the workforce is going to be left behind. Now, you know from your own time as Associate Education Minister that this, the school system f- loses about 20% of the bottom end mm. of the kids. They, they come out with virtually no qualifications. What will be there for those people? Well, that's a, that's a, a really good important question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can we afford to just keep them on a uh, some sort of benefit? No, um, because it's simply not healthy for the country and, and economically not viable either. So we have a challenge lining up a shift in our education system to a shift in our workforce. So already we can see the gaps opening up in there. Yes. Um, the wealth gap will widen as a result of that. And then in other places, we're going to have um, severe workforce constraints. Yeah. So this says to me that we need to completely reconsider where the wealth of our nation comes from. Yep, absolutely. And so Paul Callaghan had some ideas 10 years ago about this and he was talking about making New Zealand a place where talent wants to live and he showed the example that about 190, 170, 190, I forget, tech billionaires living here, operating from here, would have a far greater effect than any other economic shift or change that we could uh, come up with. Yes, he was very critical of New Zealand uh, choosing to be poor, he he called it. Exactly. Again, quite controversially, but uh, saying that our reliance on uh, low-skilled workforce issues Mm. uh, was creating huge problems for us looking forward. And I think he's right. Yep. Mm. Cut down trees and ship them to somewhere else. Um, Shear sheep and cut meat, Mm. ship it to somewhere else. And And tourism. Tourism, you know, where the workers are actually earning minimum Very wage little. or not much more than that yeah, yeah. so um, we'll be operating in a virtual rather than a digital world and the, the country will be holding its economy together despite the problems of a big chunk of the workforce not actually being able to align with the work that there is to do mm. the country will be doing okay economically because of changes that I think some brave government will eventually decide to do between now and 2050 because they'll have to I don't want to get into the economics of COVID-19. But if you look at where we are now, we're back 30 years ago. And that's when that uh, um, Longy-Douglas pre-war kind of combo came along and made that radical reform to step change the economy for survival, basically. Yeah, And so that has all sorts of implications for different industry areas. And uh, I'm always fascinated by the energy sector. Mm. I know you've done some thinking about what changes we might see in that space too. Yeah, uh, well, we're already seeing people putting solar panels on their houses and buying power power walls, and and that's that's going to accelerate. There'll be more and more standalone energy supply in the form of solar, wind, uh, particularly in houses or in collective sort of clusters of houses in a cul-de-sac or in an area of town. That'll leave fewer people to pay for the support of the national grid, which the country can't do without. You're still going to be able to move power from one end of the country to the other and from the the generators so, so I think that's going to be a huge problem in terms of our tax base yes because if I'm not using the national grid at all why should I pay for it well the answer is that the, for the security of the nation you know we do need a national grid but mm. there's going to have to be some conversations around that there's going to be massive problems sooner rather than later we don't need to wait for 2050 for this we're going to see grey outs during EV peak charging periods you know if everyone did what the government wants and went and bought an electric vehicle and all come home from work at 5.30 and plug it in, 
crash most local operators. So right. a huge amount of generation will have to be cha uh, created. And also, um, if we're not going to burn coal, there's going to be massive problems meeting those peak energy demands like you know, after work charging periods. Yeah, and in these dry years which we're currently experiencing, despite the fact that I think most people would like to see coal not it's such a heavy dominance on coal being necessary, um, I'm not sure that we're going to be able to move quickly away from that. No, well the current thinking is, uh, is face slappy really, that they're going to use more energy to pump water up to the top of a lake to run it down to generate less energy, that's just madness. Mm. If that's the best uh, that politicians can come up with, then we really are in trouble in the you know, future energy stakes, and that yeah. directly impacts on national security. I mean, you need ways to be able to move ambulances, yes. fire trucks, rescue helicopters, run hospitals, and so on and so forth. Mm. Okay, what other areas have you looked at? Um, well, the technical side, that's fascinating, and it's an area that I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at in the, in the past 30 years. Science fiction is a really good way of describing to people how the future might look, and you can read it in an enjoyable Jules Verne kind of way, you know, no, no one said, oh, it's a nuclear submarine. What's a thumbnail sketch? I think that screens will be gone. You know, the laptop and the handheld telephone, all that sort of thing. Um, we'll be wearing personalised contact lenses, which is where we'll see all our access our web and see all our data. Uh, they'll double as correcting your vision as well. Uh, sorry, optometrists. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a few people without jobs in the future. Yeah, I mean, automation doesn't just mean getting rid of um, labour. No. Yeah, unskilled labour. The wearables like Fitbits and your Garmin watches and all that sort of thing, that'll be a thing of the past and everything will be uh, embedded. So already we're seeing in Europe people you know, having chips for various purposes embedded under their skin and that'll become more common, the bio-modification or bio-hacking stuff. Avatars, you know, the digital virtual you that's somewhere else, uh, that'll become more and more normal, uh, especially in the workplace environment. So just think working from home and then take it, make it virtual. This conversation just takes me straight back to when I was a child and I used to love the Jetsons on TV. Do you remember that comic yeah, yeah, uh, program yeah. where they all flew around? That hasn't eventuated and it's hard to know, isn't it, looking forward. We're often guessing about what the new developments and the new technologies are going to look like. Often we're wrong because they go off on a different tangent, hmm. but things are certainly going to look quite different to situation normal today, don't you think? Yeah, and... In terms of national security, the two big leaps forward in technology that always occur are war and sex. And so I'm talking about you know the, the porn industry uh, developing all this online um, video stuff, but in war we had huge leaps forward in, um, in all sorts of spaces. But in war we, had, we take quantum leaps forward in technology. So trying to imagine what the technology would look like in a quantum leap is a way is look is a way of looking back at what the warfare and national security challenges will be as well. Mm. So why would you, in the Jetsons model, move your family physically in a little flying saucer from A to B if you can project them virtually to that place mm. or what the people you need to see can be projected to you? And I think this will have huge implications. I'm going to talk about the virtual infantry squad in another. Uh, in another uh, podcast where, yep. we, where we won't actually have large numbers of physical human beings but we will have that large presence yep. in a space on the battlefield. Um, we'll be seeing, because of the need to catch up with the workforce gap, the education gap, I think we'll be seeing a whole lot of schools, uh, if not all, move to virtual 
or alternate routines. So no longer this you know five days of nine to three, mm. uh, hugely inefficient. And we'll see more immersive teaching methods using the technologies that are available, like um, virtual and augmented reality. Yeah, and the curriculum's going to have to be very different if there's not those um, those low-skilled jobs that we can rely on for those who aren't meeting a particular standard. Yeah, the idea of you know getting people enough credits to graduate yeah. for the purpose of graduating isn't mm. an end in itself. No. And so core skills will remain core skills, I think. Yep. But there's going to be some change, that's for sure. What about privacy protection? Well, in twenty in in my twenty fifty projection, it, uh, privacy protection has all but collapsed, and several writers have agreed on that, uh, largely because people gave it away, and you hear it all the time. Oh, well, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. What, what have we got to fear? So it'll be a combination of um, that sort of attitude, um, people not holding uh, politicians to account in regards to like surveillance laws, mm. privacy laws. Uh, government departments the same, you know, data sharing and companies data sharing, um, and so all in all, there will be virtually once the once the horse is bolted, there will be no privacy anymore. Um, so then you get into a discussion for national security purposes of the line between privacy and security, and I'm going to um, explore that in another podcast about mm. just how you uh, then do security clearances for an individual in your security organisation who has abandoned all hope of privacy. Hmm. When everything in their house is connected to the internet. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're quite a way down that path now. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Indefensible New Zealand. Thanks for joining the National Security Conversation. If you found this podcast episode useful, please subscribe and share it with your friends. For more information on New Zealand's national security or to send in questions for the series, please go to my website, unclass.com. Mm-hmm.